Nations. See ancient artifacts up close and long lost ancient scrolls. The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. Some years ago, off the coast of the United States of America, a submarine went down to the bottom of the ocean when another United States Navy ship hit it and and sunk the thing. And most of the the divers, the submariners, I should say, died, were dead on board. But there was about five or six in one of the holds of the submarine that were still alive, and the U.S. Navy sent divers down to try to get them out. As the divers were swimming over the hull of the submarine... They and feeling, you know, examining the thing, they they could feel some vibrations coming from inside the hull of the submarine, and they realised somebody was tapping a message in Morse code uh, with a hammer or some instrument, and this was the message that was being tapped on the inside hull of the submarine. Is there any hope? That's a pretty good question when you're trapped in a submarine, isn't it? A good message indeed. And as we mentioned this afternoon as we began, many people, as it were, are tapping a similar message on the inside hull of this planet, if we could put it that way. Is there any hope when we see some of the things that are taking place in the world today? Well, we want to see this afternoon that yes, we can know the future, no question about it, and yes, there is hope. We want to go to Iraq in, uh, in ancient Babylonian Empire. As I mentioned, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC in his third reign. He took captives, and I mentioned one of them was King Jehoiachin, whose ration tablet we now have at the Pergamon Museum. One of the captives was a guy by the name of Daniel, who actually has a book written in the biblical records, in the Bible, known as the book of Daniel. He wrote it originally, when it was originally written, about 530 BC, while he's living in uh, ancient Mesopotamia, in Babylon. Now you must remember that the book of Daniel is found among the Dead Sea Scroll collection, and in fact, we now know it was one of the favourite books of the Essene community there at the edge of the Dead Sea because we have so many fragments of the book of Daniel from uh, way back. So it was a very famous book for these people. Now, one night, Daniel records for us in his second chapter, Daniel 2, he says, one night the king, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had a dream. And when he woke up, he was petrified. He was Blown out of his brains, as we would say today. He was, it was a nightmare. Now, we may think, why well, record a thing like that? Well, it shows the historical accuracy of the biblical manuscripts again, because we now know that the Babylonians put a lot of stock on dreams. They believed dreams were omens of the future. That's why this guy wakes up in a cold sweat. Well, I've had a terrible nightmare. What is going to happen? What is this an omen of? In fact, you can go to the British Museum today and you can see this dream omen tablet from ancient Mesopotamia, which shows again that the Babylonians believed that dreams 
were omens of the future. This guy wants to know, what does my dream mean? So he calls in his advisors, and many of his advisors were what we would call the psychics of his day, magicians, astrologers, and people who consulted the dead and all sorts of things uh, to try to advise the king what he should do. Now, again, this shouldn't surprise us. Daniel mentions very clearly that these were astrologers. And if you go to the Louvre Museum today in Paris, you will see a Babylonian astrology charm. And if you can read the cuneiform script, you should be able to read that by now because we gave you a crash course this afternoon, you will be able to read uh, your sign of the zodiac and so on because they were into this sort of thing. So when Daniel wrote this, this is indeed what was practiced in ancient Babylon. So he asked these advisors, these magicians and and so on. He says, what does my dream mean? They said, no problem. Tell us what you dreamt. He said, well, that's the problem. He said, I can't remember what I dreamt. Well, then how do you expect us to be able to tell you what it means if you can't tell us what it was, these guys said. Then the king comes up with a bright idea. He says, well, listen, if you guys are so clever, you're so smart, you tell me what I dreamt, and then I'll believe the spin that you put on the dream. Now, he had them over a bit of a barrel here. Now, this guy said, listen, that's impossible. Nobody can tell you what you dreamt. Only the gods could do that. They said, and they don't live around here. They're out there somewhere. Nobody can tell you what you dreamt. Well, the king said, well, if you can't tell me, you lose your head. Just as well, that doesn't happen today if you're an advisor to the <laughs> prime minister or whatever. But that's the way they did it in ancient Babylon. So... The soldiers go around the city rounding up the king's advisors. They're not all psychics. They're not all astrologers. Some of them were just people who just gave the king advice on whatever it was. And he, he, he rounds them up. One of them is Daniel because he's an advisor to the king. And so the soldiers come to Daniel and say, Daniel, you lose your head today. He says, what's it all about? And he's told the story about the, the dream that the king can't remember. And uh, he says, you, you lose your head because you're one of these guys. So Daniel says, we're on a bit here. Give me some time. Just give me some time and I'll come and tell the king what he dreamt. So Daniel goes back to his house. And he's got three friends and he says, listen, we better get on and we better get and pray here. He says, we better ask God to help us because if we don't come up with the dream, we lose our life. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. There are no atheists in foxholes, are there? When push comes to shove and we come, we're in a rock and a hard place, suddenly we all call out, God help me. Well, Daniel, of course... He, uh, he was a, 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 a great, great man and he went to pray. And so that night he's given the same dream. He comes back the next day and he goes to the king uh, Nebuchadnezzar and he says, King, I can tell you exactly what you dreamt. He said, this is what you saw. He said, you saw this humongous statue made of metal. The head was made of solid gold. And then after that, the chest and arms were made of silver. Then the belly and the thighs were made of bronze, and that gave way to legs made of iron. Then the feet themselves, they were made of iron and clay, a mixture. A stone was cut out of a mountain without any hands. It smashed the image on the feet. The whole thing blew away, the pieces, and that rock became a huge mountain and it filled up the whole world. And you can imagine the king's eyes and he popped out of his head. He said, that's exactly it. That's exactly what I dreamt. Thanks. Now, what does it mean? What's the interpretation of that dream? How do I understand this? Daniel then proceeds to share with the king. But before he did, I want you to notice the humility of this man. 
He tells him, he said, listen, it wasn't for me, I, I, it's not my, because I'm clever. He said, there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will come to pass or what will be in the latter days. What is going to take place from here on? I'm going to explain it to you. In fact, down to the latter days, the time of the end. So this is the picture he has. Now this is 2,500 years ago and we have the copies of this to at least 2,200 years ago in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but originally 530 BC. So he explains. It says really, in a nutshell, as we're going to see, he gives in a succession of four world superpowers or world empires from the time of the Babylonians right on down through to our own time, as you're going to see ending with the last empire, that rock that smashed the image on the feet and became a big mountain. Now he says, King, let's, let's, let's start. The head of gold, he said, that's you. You are the head of gold. Your kingdom, in other words, your empire is the head of gold. Now the Babylonian empire started at 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, defeated the Assyrians. And they lasted until 539 BC, and we'll see what happened in a moment. But the idea of a golden head and gold was a fitting symbol for ancient Babylon, because Babylon was a very wealthy city, as you can appreciate from what a little bit of the history we can look at. For example, Cyrus, the great Persian king who conquered Babylon, as we'll see, he took away many treasures from ancient Babylon. Then, of course, a little later, one of the great Persian kings who followed him, Xerxes, he took away $150 million worth of treasures from Babylon itself. 200 years after this time that Daniel's talking to the king, 200 years later, Alexander the Great, he came to this area and he took away 500 camels loaded with gold. So the idea of a golden empire was quite, quite uh, fitting for ancient Babylon. Now, let's get a little bit of an idea of the city of Babylon. It was a large city for ancient standards. For example, it was about 16 kilometres around. Now, you compare that to ancient Rome, which was about nine and a half kilometres around, or to Athens, which was about six and a half, and you begin to see that this was no mean city, the city of Babylon. An incredible city indeed. Now, you came into Babylon through what we call the Ishtar Gate here. Now, these are not the real ones. These are replicas that were put up by the Iraqis during the time of Saddam Hussein. The real ones, you go to Berlin to see these, to the Pergamon Museum. And uh, the Germans excavated Babylon. They took down these gates and they shipped it off and put it all back together again in the Pergamon Museum there in Berlin. And so these are the gates that you would have seen the king walk through or Daniel himself back in ancient times. Coming off from the Ishtar gates was a processional way and there were glazed lions that were depicted on this processional way. By the way, in a future program I'll be taking another incredible prediction from Daniel himself where the kingdom of Babylon is likened to a lion with eagle's wings. You can see these lions actually have wings on them, a symbol that the Babylonians used. So the biblical prophets indeed were historically accurate in their depiction of these things. Now, according to the biblical writer, uh, Daniel, in his book, he says that the builder of Babylon, the Neo-Babylonian city, because Babylon had existed for many centuries before, but the Assyrians destroyed it. He said the builder of the Neo-Babylonian uh, empire and city was Nebuchadnezzar. 
And scholars said for many years, historians said, that's, that's, that's baloney. That's a myth, that's a legend, that's a fairy tale. That's not true. We know it was a queen, they said, by the name of Semiramis. That's who we think did it. Then when the, exca the excavations began in Iraq, they discovered that the biblical writers were correct. For example, if you go to the Berlin Museum today and see the Ishtar Gates, you will see an inscription off the side which tells us very clearly that Nebuchadnezzar was the founder of Babylon. There's no question about it, according to what's written there. Then you can see these bricks with Nebuchadnezzar's name on them. And we have a real brick with Nebuchadnezzar's name on This is not a replica. You probably Some of you saw it on display there. That's from 2,500 years ago. Nebuchadnezzar's name was written on many of the bricks of ancient Babylon, which you can see in the museums today. So they realised the biblical writers were correct again. Now what happened to ancient Babylon? What took place? Well, Daniel continues as he's talking to this king 2,500 years ago. He says, now listen, after you, after Babylon, shall arise another kingdom that's inferior to yours, not as rich, not as wealthy as your kingdom, in other words. Now, that, that was the Medo-Persians. If you've studied your ancient Mesopotamian history and ancient Middle Eastern history, Mediterranean region, you'll notice that that's exactly what took place. The Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians. In fact, don't miss tomorrow's program. I'm going to take you to a, an amazing prophecy again from Daniel, which Alexander the Great heard, and because he heard it, he decided not to destroy Jerusalem. And that comes from the next chapter, where Daniel mentions that by name, Medo-Persia, who would be in charge after the Babylonian. So the silver chest, he says, that's Medo-Persia. That's the next great empire. Now, Something interestingly in the takeover. According to Daniel in his book, he says the last king of Babylon was a guy called Belshazzar. Now again, the scholars for many years said that's nonsense. That's not true. We know the last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, the father, it turns out. Now, Belshazzar, they said, in fact, we've never even heard mention of this guy. He never knew, he doesn't seem to have existed. Yet the biblical writers talk about him this way, Daniel. Well, when they began to excavate again in, the, in Mesopotamia, they discovered cylinders like this, and we have a, a replica of this today on display. The Nabonidus cylinder tells us very clearly that Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus. So now the scholars knew, no, this guy did exist, and he was the son of Nabonidus, but was he the last king? That's a different question. Well, a few more years went by, and they discovered this important chronicle known as the Nabonidus Chronicle. And on this chronicle... Uh, Nabonidus tells us very clearly that he entrusted the kingship, that is of Babylon, the city itself, to Belshazzar in the third year of his reign. Because what happened now, we notice, that Nabonidus was a bit of a religious recluse. He went and lived in a place called Temer and he said, son, look after this city for me. You're in charge. So now the scholars realised what Daniel had written was correct. He was the co-regent of the ancient city of Babylon. Now, again we can see that historically accurate, the biblical records are historically accurate, and that's important if you want a source, as we said, for knowing the future. All right, the fatal night for the Babylonians came on October 13 in the year 539 BC. Now, for some time, the Medo-Persians 
and the Babylonians had been locked in, in conflict and it was getting more and more serious. They had a great fight outside of Babylon. The Babylonians lost and they withdrew and came back into their city. And they thought they were pretty secure evidently inside their city while the Medo-Persians had now started the siege of the city. They perhaps thought they were so secure that they had a party, a festival. And in this festival it was wine, women and song. And according to Daniel, during that festival, a suddenly during the, during the party, a bloodless hand, a hand without a body attached to it, wrote a message on the plaster of the palace wall. Mene, mene, teku upasan. Nobody understood what these words mean, meant. What strange omen was it, according to the Babylon? This means something's going to happen. So they called in all the various psychics and so on, but they couldn't tell what it meant. So finally, the queen who overheard the terror that was going on, because the king was in a panic at this stage. What's this about? She hears it. She comes in. She says, why don't you get Daniel? He's an old man by now, but he told uh, one of your your um, ancestors, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, about the future, the one we're looking at. Get him in here. So Daniel comes in. He's an old man by now, and he tells him what the writing means. He says, King, the word mene, that means God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Game up, King. He says, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Now, the balances in the ancient world were symbols of judgment. You see that in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Some of you have seen the, the papyrus documents of the Book of the Dead. You'll notice there the judgment with the balances and the heart is weighed against the feather of truth, mayat. Well, the Babylonians used the scales as symbols of judgment as well. So he says, King, you've been judged and you come out on the wrong side. He finishes off by saying, Perez, that means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that very night, the Medes and the Persians poured into the city. How did they do it? Let me show you. In fact, this was even predicted by the prophet Isaiah 150 years before, as you'll see in a moment, how they would take the city. Now, the Euphrates River, when Nebuchadnezzar embellished the city, when he came in control, he actually built the city of Babylon now on both sides of the river. Part of the river Euphrates flowed through the middle of the city. He built gates at either end as the river entered the city and as it exited the city. So gates on either end, river gates. Then he built walls alongside the, the river bank so that even if you got in the river, you couldn't still get in the city because there was walls. And into those walls he built gates. So he thought he was pretty secure behind all this stuff until this night. Well, King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian leader, had decided while the party was actually happening, while the festival was going on, he decided to do a bit of tinkering with the river. And he was able to lower the level of the Euphrates River by having his soldiers and workmen dig channels off the side of that part of the river which flowed through Babylon, so he lowered the river somewhat so the soldiers could wade along on the, the river riverbed, if you like. And they were able to, because the river lowered, they were able to get under the gates that were either end. And his soldiers came from both ends. As soon as the river was low enough, they got inside. But they still couldn't get in the city because of the walls and the gates. Well, evidently, the soldiers of the Babylonians were also participating in the festival and they were drunk or something and the gates were left open. And the Medo-Persians pretty much walked into the city and took the city of Babylon 
from the Medo-Persians and were able to conquer the city without too much trouble at all. Now, the Bible writers, or Isaiah, predicted that Cyrus would take Babylon 150 years before. Isaiah wrote about the fall, the fight with King Sennacherib, the Assyrians, in tremendously accurate detail as scholars have seen today, but he also mentions Cyrus, even mentions and makes a point of making even... His name was mentioned before he even was born and before this took place. You'll notice what he says. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, and he's writing 700 BC, and this is taking place in 539 BC. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armour of kings to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. In fact, the prophet Jeremiah mentions how the river would also be involved in the collapse of ancient Babylon and how the river Euphrates would be dried up, meaning it would be lowered. Now, the Greek historians, the ancient Greek historians Xenophon and Herodotus, they also both mention the way the river Euphrates was part of the the capture of the city of Babylon. And uh, they have quite an incredible amount of detail that they share some years after that themselves, which agrees with what the biblical writer Daniel said and what prophet Jeremiah and Isaiah predicted. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, he also mentions how that 140 years before Cyrus was born, he was mentioned as going to take the city of Babylon. And of course, the famous Cyrus cylinder is very helpful because Jeremiah predicts that when the Medo-Persians took the city, that they would allow or the Jews to go home and so on after 70 years. Isaiah mentions that the king of, of the, the people, when they went, would be allowed to go home and build up their temples again, thanks to Cyrus. It's all predicted there in the writings of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, you can visit the British Museum today and you can see the famous Cyrus cylinder. And why this is important to us is he mentions pretty much of what you find in the biblical records about he allowed people to go home to their homelands, back to their places of residence before the Babylonians took them and to build up their temples and so on. So the Cyrus cylinder is very important archaeological evidence for the accuracy of these prophecies and the history that they reported on. Well, Daniel continues now. He says, listen, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, he says, which will rule over all of the earth. Here comes a third kingdom, he says, a third empire. Now, we know what the next empire was in history. The Greeks defeated the Medo-Persians. And uh, this took place eventually by 331 BC. You know, when the Medo-Persians were the dominant force in the Mediterranean region and the Middle Eastern world, they came down to Athens twice under Darius and Xerxes. And eventually they destroyed the city of Athens, completely destroyed it, and, uh, or burnt a lot of it, and especially these important structures that are the icons for Greece today, the Parthenon up on top of this, the, the, uh, the Acropolis here in Greece, in Athens. Now, the Greeks never forgot that, and they never forgave the Medo-Persians for doing that. So when Alexander the Great came into power, and he defeated the Medo-Persians, especially at the Battle of Arbella, and then he moved into Medo-Persian territory big time, when he got to Persepolis, which was the capital of the Persians, uh, then he destroyed that city and put it to the torch as well. But today, if you visit this city, it's still magnificent ruins, despite the fact that it was burnt and destroyed 
by the Greeks. You can see some amazing structures here in this fabulous city. One of the greatest cities that you can visit today in the ancient world is Persepolis in Iran. So the third kingdom, Greece, 331, lasted to 168 BC. Daniel continues as he talks to this king 2,500 years ago. Finally, he says, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Now, if you've done your history, you know that the next power that conquered the Greeks were the Romans. They defeated the Greeks, especially uh, death knell blow in 168 BC. Now, the Romans, of course, uh, existed for a long time as the number one superpower of the Middle Eastern world. Their soldiers just were a tremendous fighting machine right up into Europe, Great Britain, Mesopotamia, down into Egypt and across through the Middle Eastern world. They were the great conquerors and lasted for about 600 years as a united Roman Empire. The Iron Legs, that's the Iron Monarchy as the historian Gibbon portrays it. But Daniel hadn't finished yet. He continues, King, something else is going to take place. He says, whereas you saw the feet and toes, he says they were partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. He said the kingdom shall be divided. So Rome is going to be divided, the iron. So the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. There's going to be a divided kingdom now. Rome is going to be fragmented, in other words. And we know that's what happened in ancient history. The Western Roman Empire, first of all, disintegrated thanks to the Germanic or barbaric tribes, as they're often called. They carved up the Western part of the Roman Empire by 476 AD. So much so that the Anglo-Saxon peoples, they became what we call the English. The Visigoths became the Spanish. The Franks became the French. And so really, the breakup of the old Western Roman Empire became what we would call today the nations of Western Europe in general. So this is what happened. Rome became divided. And so Daniel is predicting this period would come, Rome would come to an end and be divided like that. Now he goes on and says, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of man, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. In other words, Daniel's predicting that they won't be able to join this together like a major superpower anymore, like the Romans or the Greeks or whatever. They will continually be divided, never to be reunited again, says the prophet Daniel. Now, there have been many attempts to unite Europe over the centuries. For example, if you go back in your history, European history to 900 AD, thereabouts, you read of a man called Charlemagne. Charlemagne was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, as it was called back then. And uh, he attempted it, but he failed. You think of Louis XIV, that great French king. Uh, he tried, but he also failed. What about Napoleon Bonaparte? Napoleon is an interesting character. I want you to notice what he said about Europe in general. He said, there will be one Europe, there will be one currency, he said, there will be one language, there will be one government over all of Europe. This is Napoleon Bonaparte. But when he was defeated in the Battle of Waterloo, this is what Napoleon said, interestingly. God Almighty is too much for me. Napoleon could see something here, evidently. But I think one of the most amazing ones is Kaiser Wilhelm. Kaiser Wilhelm, as you know, was the, the uh, leader of Germany in the First World War. Kaiser Wilhelm knew about this very prophecy, and this is what he once wrote. 
He said, Daniel's prophecy does not fit with my plans. I can't accept that. Where Charlemagne and others have failed, I will succeed, he said. Interesting. In fact, you can visit the Cathedral of Metz today. Now, back in the First World War, Metz was part of Germany. And you know, after the First World War, they sort of redrew Europe map a bit. And now that's part of France today. So you see this in France today, but it was part of Germany. If you visit this cathedral, there's some interesting history that you can see here. The people who ran this cathedral, they came to the Kaiser during the First World War and they said, Sir, our roof is leaking on our cathedral. Would you repair it? Would you pay the bill? He said, well, uh, on one condition. He said, you've got a bunch of statues around your cathedral. He said, one of them belongs to Daniel. If you take the head of Daniel off that statue, he said, and you put make a statue of my head and pop that on top, I'll fix your roof. <laughs> Interesting that the Kaiser would even talk that way. He knew about this amazing prediction, and that's why he said it didn't fit with his plans. Adolf Hitler, well, what did he say? One people, one empire, one leader. The thousand-year Reich lasted for about 10, 15 years at the maximum. Less than 15 years, just over 10. They will not cleave one to another, said this prophet 2,500 years ago to a king in ancient Babylon, and that is how it is today. Even Daniel predicted that people would try marriage relationships to unite what was once the ancient Roman Empire, which is now Western Europe. He said they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. I find this fascinating. You can visit the Fredericksburg Castle in Denmark. And if you've studied any of your European history, you will know that there's been so much intermarriage between the royal houses of the different nations, Spain, England, Greece, and so on. All oh, lots of intermarriage went on for alliances and to, to make pacts and all sorts of things, to unify different peoples, but it, it failed. They still fought like cats and dogs down through the time. It failed because the prophet said, to Nebuchadnezzar, they shall not cleave one to another. Absolutely incredible. Now, even today, there's another attempt going on there in Europe called the United States of Europe. Some amazing people have thought about this. George Washington, the President of the United States of America, this is what he said. One day, on the model of the United States, he said, of America, a United States of Europe will come into being. And many people have been attempting this currently. You may have read some of this a few years ago. President Mitterrand of France, when he was the president, he said, a great power is being born, talking about the European Union and so on. Francois, uh, sorry, Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany back then, he said, the course is irreversible, we're going to get there. Then just a few years back, there was Romano Prodi, who was the president of the European Union at that stage, Notice what he said, we can and we will succeed in creating a unified, prosperous, democratic Europe where citizens can live in peace and freedom. I was interested to read in the same issue of Time magazine these words, the European Commission or Union is still far from being the European government that Prodi would like to claim it is. The only thing about they have really in common to a large degree is a common currency, and that looks like it's falling apart largely in some respects. Even the Brits didn't take that. They've still got their pound. They love that. Hmm. So there's still this 
It hasn't happened. But there are serious attempts to try to make it happen. Daniel predicted, they shall not cleave one to another. Well, Daniel finishes off as he's talking to this king so long ago. He says, now listen here, king. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Now he says, let's talk about this stone. What's the stone represent? We've gone through the whole thing. Now the stone's the thing that's left. He's told in no question, and no uncertain terms, what this is. He says, King, in the days of these kings, that's the divided kings of, of the toes and the feet, the king of the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not, he says, it shall not be left to other people, meaning to take it over. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. In other words, King, the last empire, that's the kingdom of God. It will take over the affairs of human beings. Now, how soon? He made it very plain in the days of these kings. He's talking about the divided nations of Europe down in the feet of iron and of clay. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. This is our times that we're talking about here. There's not much beyond the feet when you think of the statue. In other words, he's saying, well, we can see the last empire is about to appear. We are in those times. Well, what will the last empire be like as we close? What sort of an empire will it be like? Every time we go to a funeral, probably nearly every time, people will read these words from the Apocalypse or the Book of Revelation. Good words, but they're a description of this last empire. That's what it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, nor crying, there shall be no more pain, for the former things are passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. In other words, John, the revelator on the island of Patmos, is predicting that the next empire will be an empire where there is no more tears. I want you to think about that for a minute. We see too many images on television night by night of people whose lives are shattered. It's either from some abuse that they've suffered or it's some hunger somewhere on the planet and little kids running around because he's, 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 he's just about starved to death. Or there's a, two kids there, they're crying their eyes out because mum and dad have just been blown up by a terrorist. We see too much of this today. Well, the next empire, no more tears, says John, and no more pain. Just the other day, while I was in Hobart, where we're living now, I was visiting with some folk, and this lady has, has had operations on her neck and screws screwed in to be able to keep her head up. But right now, the doc says, we can't do any more. Your neck is crumbling. Your bones, the screws can't hold anymore. So she has to have this thing to hold her neck up. Next episode, and I tell you, she just suffers pain in and out. I have another friend in, in Western Australia was in the SAS combat unit, came down, parachuted down, landed wrongly. For 40, nearly 50 years, Pat has had a morphine injection going on all the time to stop the pain. Some of you probably know a bit about that. There is coming a place where there will be no more pain. What a world that will be. A place where there will be no more sorrow. No more sorrow for the way people are treated. No more 
funerals. What a world that will be when you think about it. We have stood over too many open graves of too many loved ones and too many friends. And John says there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow in that last empire. No question about it. As Daniel finished off, he said to the king, The great God has shown the king what shall come to pass in the future. And he said, The dream is certain. You can bet your life on it, king, it's going to happen. And the interpretation is sure. He was definitely positive about this outcome, this interpretation. In fact, you know, I want you to think about it this afternoon. Everything that Daniel predicted has actually happened. We've had Babylon. He predicted it, it came, he said it would be followed by the Medo-Persians. They came, they had their day, he said they'd be followed by the Greeks. The Greeks came, they were a powerful empire for a number of years, but he said there'd be a fourth kingdom. Now he could have said a fifth kingdom, a sixth kingdom, a seventh, but he never did. He got it exactly right as you read in your history textbooks from school. Four great empires in the Middle Eastern world from the time of Babylon, and that's it in the Mediterranean region. And then he said the fourth one would be divided, and that's exactly what happened. These things are absolutely precise, and we know because we have the, we have the ancient biblical records from at least 2200 BC, so these are not written after the events and made to look like a prediction because we have the stuff even before the Romans have come to power and so on. No question about it. This is the case. Now, you think about it. Now, I'm going to make a prediction tonight here, this afternoon, Bob. I'm not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet, but here's my prediction. When you go to bed tonight, you're going to take your shoes off your feet before you get into bed. That's my prediction. <laughs> not too many of us sleep with our shoes on our feet these days, do we? But when you think about it, seriously, we, we, can, we can look at our feet and we're going to say, that's where we are today, down in the feet of iron and clay, weak and divided, as we can see very clearly in history today and current events, weak and divided, soon to pass away. The next thing? That stone, where there'll be a, a last empire of no more suffering, no more sorrow and so on. There's that submarine sitting on the bottom of the, the ocean. The divers hear that message, is there any hope? They tap the message in Morse code on the outside hull of that submarine, and this was their message to the submariner's trap. Yes, there is hope. We're going to get you out. You know, when you think about this incredible prediction that we've had a look from 2,500 years ago, the haunting question that's on many people's minds today, if we're really thinking about what's taking place in the world, is that question, is there any hope? And this prediction from Daniel, way back to a king who doesn't even believe in the God of heaven, but God cares about him, there is hope. No question about it. And the prediction shows us that Yes, you can bet your life it's going to happen. There is a better world that is coming. Now, I don't know about you, but I noticed on the eve of the new millennium back in 1999, 2000, and now again in 2012, many of the predictions that were being made by many people concerned ran around the theme of gloom and doom, if you read some of the stuff. Not all of it, but much of it was about gloom and doom. This is going to happen, that's going to happen. Now, the biblical prophets... They certainly made predictions about our time. But let me assure you, when you get into these predictions, that they offer hope with peace and meaning and purpose in life. It's not just a bunch of gloom and doom stuff. Not there. You'll find Jeremiah, that prophet who made many predictions, one of the things he said was this, I know the pains that I have for you, declares the Lord. 
I can see the future. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And of all the things that I believe we need today, it is hope. People without hope will disintegrate. And thank God there is a source that not only knows the future but presents a bright tomorrow as well. Oh, it's a realistic picture, but there's a bright hope. Now, in the biblical manuscripts, there are 800 prophetic verses thereabout. 90% of them have already been fulfilled in ancient civilizations. We could have spent the afternoon talking about the people of Tyre. We could have talked about ancient Egypt and the predictions made there. We could have gone on and on because most of the predictions concern ancient civilizations and they've already been fulfilled and so accurately. That leaves only 10% left. And these are the ones that are in the process of being fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled. And these are the ones that we're going to be looking at as we move on from here. We're going to go to the two great books dealing with the 10%. And those are the books of Daniel, the prophet. Incredible stuff he wrote. You've seen one of them today. And the book of Revelation. These prophecies you will see can clearly be understood and you'll be able to know exactly what is taking place and what's going to take place. We'll be going to university history each time and we'll also be going to archaeology as we proceed. We'll be looking at those two things to show the predictions and what we see very clearly through time and into our own time. We'll be looking at current events as well. We'll be going back to ancient civilizations again and again, especially because in light of what archaeologists and historians have found. And as we proceed through this series, let me tell you a number of things that will happen. You will understand the meaning of current global events. You'll understand the big picture, no question, from these predictions. Not only that, you will know what the future holds. You will know where we're headed. That's without question when we go to these incredible books of Daniel and the Apocalypse or the Revelation. Thirdly, you'll discover how to face the future with absolute hope and confidence. I can assure you of that. And finally, we will find increased meaning and purpose in life today. There is no question about that as well. So we're glad you journeyed with us today. We can see here is a source that does know the future. It has the two ingredients. It has historical accuracy as seen by archaeology and ancient history and also it has a proven track record. We've just shared, been able to share with you one big one today so we get an idea, but we'll see many more as we proceed from here on in. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM.